Now on RT Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. Earlier this month, the legendary American folk singer Jean Ritchie died aged 92. Remembering that remarkable woman and artist, we listen back to an Arts Tonight programme first broadcast last December in the week of her 92nd birthday and marking the release of a new CD called Dear Jean. We celebrate the legacy of the Kentucky-born singer-songwriter who many refer to as the mother of folk. A recent album called Dear Jean has quickly become the most popular and biggest-selling folk album in the US. A tribute album, it contains cover versions of Jean Ritchie songs by people like Janice Ian and Peggy Seeger and handsome written tributes from the likes of Dolly Parton and Joan Baez. We'll be speaking to her son, John Pickle, about his mother and his father, the renowned photographer. George Pickle. First, Jean Ritchie has close links to Ireland, as singer Mary McPartland discovered when she travelled to the US on a Fulbright scholarship two years ago. She's been telling me about those links and her own music legacy, which led her to Kentucky and to Jean Ritchie. Well, I come from County Leitrim, from Drumkeeran, and um, it's the hills, I think, of Drumkeeran rather than the mountains. I think the mountain ranges across Schlieveneeren, but um, I uh, was singing all my life and eventually got more interested in research and um, teaching and working in the arts in Galway. I went and uh, discovered the child ballads at the university in Galway and from there uh, I discovered Jean Ritchie and the extraordinary um, songs of her own, uh, the songs that she had collected and a very, very special book called Folk Songs of the Southern Appalachian Mountains and I carried that book for a few years I think before I recorded my first CD then last year I was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to go and teach in New York and do some research on my own music. I wanted to look at the blues, some jazz and make an album around my own folk music from the west of Ireland and um, I discovered uh, as I was awarded the Fulbright that Jean Ritchie was also awarded a Fulbright scholarship in 1952 so there was certainly a, a message in there for me and I knew I was going to be going to Berea. She came to, to Ireland and I think to, to Scotland and England as well in 52. So 60 years before you went the other way, before you went to the Exactly States. 60 years. So, yeah. so journeys, in a sense, intersecting, opposite directions, but a central point. Your, your own family, I think your, your mother, there was a, a lot of song, a lot of singing and a lot of music in your mother's family. Were they wards from Tyrone? That's right. Uh, Mummy came from a place called Plumbridge and uh, the ward family were a family of singers and musicians. And though there wasn't much music when we were children growing up uh, in Drumkeeran, certainly my mother passed on the music to me and to my siblings and there was always singing and a great love of singing and it was a very natural thing um, we never questioned it. it it was part of who we were uh, growing up so it was great then later on when I started research uh, and going to Northern Ireland and there's such richness in Northern song and even listening to my own family but there's so many great singers and of course I was drawn to the great uh, collector and singer Sarah Makem and of course Jean on her travels uh, went to Keating County Armagh went to the um, Makem household and recorded wonderful songs from Sarah Makem 
And of course, there are photographs in, as it now is, the, the Ritchie Pico archive in NUI Galway. They really capture place, time and a sense of music as well. An extraordinary photographer, um, the energy and the, the brightness and the storytelling that's actually in these black and white photographs of Jean recording Seamus Ennis, Jean in the kitchen with Bess Cronin, Jean with Sarah Makem's family, going to the Aran Islands, uh, making the pampooties, you know, working in the fields. There are other photographs of, you know, work George took in Dublin and lots of different uh, things besides the photographs he took uh, with Jean uh, collecting all her songs in Ireland. Of course, the same happened in England and Scotland. But in 1996, the Richie Pico um, collection was acquired by the uh, James Hardiman Library at NUI Galway uh, under the auspices of uh, Professor Davi O'Cronin, who is the grandson of Beth Cronin. And, Beth uh, Cronin, of course, of course, one of the great singers of, yes. of Ireland, recorded by Seamus Ennis, among others. And, and, and I think Jean Ritchie also recorded Ennis. She did, and uh, there's extraordinary um, recordings in that archive at NUI Galway of Seamus Ennis talking, Seamus Ennis playing, Seamus Ennis singing and talking, and great character that he was. So I think they had good times together, Jean and Seamus Ennis. Let's have a listen to some of those good times together. I wonder what's keeping my true love tonight. I wonder what's keeping him out of my sight. Oh, little does he know of the pain I endure. Or he'd not keep me waiting like this, I am sure. Oh, love, are you coming our case to advance? Our love, are you waiting on a far better chance? Or have you got a sweetheart laid by you in store? Our love, are you coming to see me no more? Oh, love, I'm not coming your pain to advance. Nor love am I waiting on a far better chance. Nor have I got a sweetheart laid by me in store. But love, I am coming to see you no more. Green grass and grows bonny, spring water runs clear. I weary, I weary when I think on you, dear. But true love is fickle like the dew on the thorn that falls down in the evening and goes away with the morn. So come all you young maidens, take warning from me, and never build your nest in the top of a tree, for the green leaves will wither and the roots will decay, and the blushes of young love will soon fade away. I learned that song in 1946 from a girl named Mary Boyle, aged about 30, 
from Letter K. Dunlow in the Rosses in West Donegal. She learned it from other girls around the locality where quite a lot of these ballads are sung. It's very nice the way you sing it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just the way she sang it. Mm -hmm. And five or six other girls with her. <laughs> yeah, it would make a lovely recording. Mm -hmm. Five or six of them together singing. How can they all sing together in those little, you know, when they put the... They do, these girls. They used to be knitting. Uh, At that time, you see, there was some scheme. Uh -huh. You see, it was government subsidised. Uh -huh. They used to dish out wool, you see, to the girls, and they used to knit gloves in their spare time and hand in so many gloves per month, you see, and get paid for them. And these girls used to come to each other's houses and knit and sing together. Uh -huh. It was purely, a, you can say, a modern folk singing custom yeah. that had grown there. Jean Ritchie and Seamus Ennis there from 1952. Mary, thinking about, again about, you know, your own inheritance of song and how song leads somebody on a, on a journey very often. I, I think you would say that, that it was singing brought you to the point where you were going to the US to research, to teach and to make this journey then to Kentucky and uh, to Berea, this town where Jean Ritchie lives. Tell me about your journey to there, because I know you were based in, in New York. The journey was uh, a wonderful one because I'd never been to Kentucky. Uh, in fact, I didn't even know how to get from New York to Kentucky. I connected up um, initially with some wonderful uh, academics and wonderful musicians at Berea College. And I, I discovered they revered the great Jean Ritchie who lived within five minutes of Berea College. They were very interested, of course, in the fact that I was so interested in her and my own music and um, I sang for them and did some lectures and so they became very aware of me and then from that I was able to uh, ask them whether it would be possible that I would be able to go and meet uh, with Jean. Uh, I had the most incredible uh, meeting with her. Uh, it was very emotional and very beautiful and I sat with her at her kitchen table in her uh, lovely little house with her family. We talked and I sang for her and uh, that was a short visit. What did you sing? Well, I did ask, what should I sing? Because I was quite nervous about anything I was going to, to do and um, I sang Barbara Allen for her. But uh, then this year I was, I went, we went back again and lots of musicians from the area came as well and we all sat around her table again and there was this wonderful atmosphere of music with Sam Gleaves and Silas House and other beautiful young musicians and singers from the area so we sang loads of songs and my beautiful book that I've kept for so many years uh, I had it with me and together we looked at it and she was pointing at lots of different photographs and reminding herself and me of uh, where these photographs came from that was amazing and that's just um, you know seven months ago and I sang different songs on the day and uh, she even hummed along herself with some songs but I think the fact that uh, she's 92 is an extraordinary uh, thing it's an incredible story. You an mentioned uh, Barbara Allen there and singing a tour and that song I think is, is on your own album Petticoat Loose uh, and the version on that album taken I think partly from Jean Ritchie singing and partly from Dolly Parton who's a great admirer of Jean Ritchie. That's right. Well, you know, through the child ballads I would have sort of looked at so many versions of songs as Tom Munley said many years ago there was a version of Barbara Allen in every town in Ireland never mind every town in Europe and uh, various states of America but... Um, Tom Munley of course one of the great uh, folk song collectors of, of Ireland. Indeed, yeah. I looked at so many versions and 
uh, in the midst of them all, I looked at uh, Dolly's singing of Barbara Allen and uh, Jean's. I didn't know that they were connected either, but um, and I put it together and that's how I have my version of Barbara Allen. It was early, early in the spring When rosebuds they were swelling Young William on his deathbed lay For the love of Barbara Allen Mary McPartland there is singing Barbara Allen. John Pickle, tell me a little bit about your mother, Jean Ritchie, and, and her place in, in American and indeed in, in world folk music. She grew up in a, a large family in, in a town called Viper, Kentucky, in the uh, Appalachian region. And uh, she was the youngest of 14 children. Uh, there was May, Ollie, Mally, Uni, Raymond, Kitty, Truman, Patty, Edna, Jewel, Opal, Pauline, Wilmer, and Jean, the youngest. And so she was sort of a repository for a lot of the culture that came down, and it was all passed down to her. And of course, as Mary can tell you, and a lot of folklorists have mentioned over the years, that region was sort of a, a place where music was trapped, <laughs> where, you know, because after the Civil War, there really wasn't a lot of commerce in and out of there. So a lot of their traditions and a lot of their uh, music was really preserved there very beautifully. Uh, and Mom came to New York after... Her, her father believed in education very strongly, and, and Mom ended up going to the University of Kentucky, and she was one of the first uh, graduates of the School of Social Work there, which is now a wonderful, wonderful department. Um, and she came to New York to work at the Henry Street Settlement, and she had an afternoon program, uh, after-school program for immigrant children, and, and in those days the big uh, immigrant population here was Italian people. So she worked with Italian kids, and she used her music and her songs to keep them active, and she taught them some of the games from her childhood, the play party games and dances. And there's an outgrowth of that. Other people that she worked with heard her and had her bring her dulcimer to parties and play and sing around town, different different things. And she um, eventually came to the attention of Alan Lomax, who was a very well-known collector and, and folklorist. And he, at the time, was involved with what was later to become the uh, American Folklife Center with the Library of Congress. And he heard her sing, and he just said, I want to record everything, every song you know. <laughs> and she said, well, I know quite a few. It's going to take some time. So, uh, But they did. They had long sessions of recording, and he introduced her around. He introduced her to people like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and to Oscar Brand, who had a radio show. In fact, I work on that radio show even to this day. It's, he started it in 1945, and it's the longest-running... It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. It's the longest-running broadcast, and uh, it's called Folk Song Festival. And so Mom was invited to sing by Oscar on that program, and that sort of got interest in her music and in her singing uh, knowing. And I guess her first official concert was for the Country Dance Society, which is now the Country Dance and Song Society and uh, in New York City, and she's never stopped until and, uh, she retired just recently. And of course, with Alan Lomax, she wrote that famous 1955, I think, autobiography, Singing Family of the Cumberlands. Uh, she originally wanted to do a songbook, or, and I think that was Alan's idea too. And so she started writing introductions for the songs and about how they came into the family, and Oxford University Press 
was interested, and they looked at it and said, well, why don't you expand on these introductions, because they're charming. And she ended up writing a family autobiography uh, called Singing Family of the Cumberlands, which is still in print. It's available for, through University of Kentucky Press now. Tell me then about growing up in, in the singing family of, of the, the Richies and, and Picos. It was a fascinating way to grow up because, you know, we were exposed to so much, not only our own family's music, but uh, we were taken to festivals and concerts and we were backstage with some of the, the great people of that time. I'm 56, by the way, so it's, and we're talking about mostly the 60s. Um, many times the grown-ups would be singing in the other room and the kids would sort of fall asleep and they'd put us on a pile of coats in the corner. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was, a, it was a great way to grow up. And in terms of our family music... When we went down to Kentucky, we would be, you know, we would always be singing. And I think we always sang uh, in the car or if we were working around the house or whatever we did, there was always uh, some music going on, especially if mom was around. And did did your parents talk about that time in, in Ireland and, and Scotland and England in, in 1952 or the, their memories of that? Oh, yes. They were still at that time very much in touch with a lot of the people that they had known there and... Uh, they made such wonderful friendships there. I mean, I, we were talking before about Seamus Ennis. He became an, a very good friend of theirs. In fact, when they were there for a while, he was kind of a guide that got them started. He introduced them to a lot of sources that they ended up recording from, um, as well as being uh, just a wonderful source himself. One one seasonal song, I suppose, that I think your your mother is is very fond of is uh, "We Three Kings," and <laughs> there's a, there's a marvelous recording of it uh, from from the archive in in Berea University, uh, which we're going to have a listen to in a moment. But before we do, tell us about this and its its place in in a way in the folklore as well as folk music of your family. Well. <laughs> This was something that my brother and I had heard in grade school. Uh, it was a, a parody of the, the Christmas Carol, We Three Kings, um, or Epiphany Carol, really. Um, and I don't know, we just started singing it around the house, and my mother was charmed by it because uh, she thought it was a real piece of Americana, a real piece of folklore. So occasionally, just to show how uh, folk traditions were still alive and well uh, among schoolchildren, she would get us to sing that. Uh. Let's have a listen to it. People uh, start making up songs. Usually everybody does it, I think. And children, most of all. Um, I remember uh, my little boy coming in off the school ground one day. He was Peter, my oldest one. He's 23 now, but when he was going to kindergarten or first grade, somewhere along there, came in one day with a devilish look in his eye, and he said, uh, I learned a new song in church today, a new Christmas carol. And I said, oh, that's good. And he started singing We Three Kings. And so I thought, well, he just doesn't know it's an old Christmas carol. He thinks it's new. But then he started, got into it, and I saw it was a little different than the Christmas carol I knew. And children, of course, have got a hold of the song and changed it. It went like this. We three kings of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. It was loaded and exploded. We two kings of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. It was loaded and exploded. We one king of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. It was loaded and exploded. Silent story about my older son Peter and then my four years later Johnny was born and 
Johnny, uh, of course, after a while, didn't want to be left out, and so I started telling a story about him. And he did this when he was about two years old, or he talked and sang very early. One day he was in the living room playing with his blocks, and I was in the kitchen mopping, and I'm, uh, he hollered at me, and he said, Mommy, I want you to tell me a story, or read me a story, or do something. And I said, No, I can't now. I've got a mop in the floor. I'll be in there in a minute as soon as I get, I was expecting company, you know, and I want to get the place cleaned up. And uh, he said, I want it right now. And I said, you can't have it right now because I have to finish mopping the floor. But as soon as I finish mopping the floor, I'll be in there. Now, you just wait. So he went back to play, and then I heard the blocks knocking around, and I heard him humming and singing. And I thought, I won't have to go in there at all. He completely forgot about it. But then I listened to his words, and the words kind of gave me a, a turn. They went, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to kill myself, and get blood. Don't you all try that now. <laughs> when, uh, when I should have done that in the beginning, I should have gone in and read the story, but I didn't. I was trying to put him off. And he was using the song to get his message across to me. But he might not have realized that, but he was sending me a message for that song. And I got it. And so people do. The voice of Gene Ritchie there, uh, John Pico, <laughs> I suppose, in, in a way, a uh, classic ballad uh, reaction there. You're going straight to the to the core of things. Uh, do you remember that well, as a child? It's one of my earlier compositions, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't actually remember that. No, I must have been very young, but I've heard the story, so I guess it's a, a memory. But what impressed me just listening to it now was I had a wonderful sense of, of modality. I mean, you notice it sort of starts out in major and then soars up to this minor part on the I don't know where I got that, but... <laughs> you, you'd been absorbing a lot at that stage. Um, it, I guess so. Uh, it strikes me as reading some of the notes on, on this recent album, Dear Jean, artists celebrating mm-hmm. Jean Ritchie, and a, a remarkable album. Uh, many, many people paying tribute to her, Janice Ian, Peggy Seeger, Pete Seeger in there. Uh, so many. And, and Joan Baez in a note says that uh, she remembers Jean from the 60s and it, she made her sound like Doris Day. And uh, <laughs> she describes your mother as, as the mother of folk and uh, a living museum of impeccably rendered songs uh, passed on from singer to singer, influencing and inspiring generations. And I, I think that's, that seems very apt and, and, and very true. And it's, it's just one of a, a number of tributes on, on that album. And t- tell me about your own involvement in, in the making of Dear Jean. It was a wonderful effort by three people primarily, uh, Dan Schatz, Mick Lane, and Charlie Pilser. And the three of them had done a, a, a similar project for Utah Phillips called Singing Through the Hard Times. And they got a variety of artists, and Mom was one of them. And they asked her to contribute a song. And she remarked at the time, what a wonderful thing to do for someone. Uh, I, I hope someone does this for me someday when I'm old. And uh, Dan and Mick uh, and Charlie remembered that, and they, they put that into practice. And they really worked tirelessly to get some of the most incredible people. And it's really a mix of well-known people and obscure, up-and-coming people, just so many different people that were touched by Mom's music and, and her life, and it's just a wonderful compilation. I can't say enough. Mom loves it, and one of the bittersweet things about the Utah Phillips 
project for them was that Utah never got to hear the finished product. But in this case, they really wanted to get going on it since mom is uh, of such advanced years. Uh, she just celebrated her 92nd. So they managed to do it, and mom loves it. She listens to it quite often and uh, enjoys it very much. So we're glad that that all transpired in time for her to enjoy it as well. And of course, uh, Peter, your brother, and, and yourself play respectively guitar and banjo on, on a track or two and, and sing as well. Uh, let's have a listen mm-hmm. to uh, Last Old Trains Are Leaving. Okay. Last Old Trains Are Leaving, I convinced Peter to, to, that we should pick that song because it's one that doesn't get performed a lot, but it's one of my favourites of hers, and it has a message that that she keeps coming back to that... Uh, no matter what happens in her homeland and uh, all the terrible things that do happen there, so mountaintop removal and and years ago they timbered the land and all of that, and she always found the beauty in it and, and never wanted to leave. Although she did, she never in her heart left uh, the Kentucky mountains. And we were very fortunate to uh, get our friend Kenny Kosek to play on it, uh, the renowned fiddler. A lot of people brought in friends to, to play and sing on their tracks, and that was a, a wonderful way of including even more people. Let's have a listen to that song, Last Old Trains Are Leaving. Standing on the mountain, standing on the mountain, standing on the mountain, don't you want to go? From the album Dear Jean, Artists Celebrate Jean Ritchie. That's the last old trains leaving Peter Pico, John Pico and Kenny Cusick there. John Pico, you mentioned there your mother's commitment to the environment in, in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's a, it was a note and a motif on, on this album. Well, a uh, year ago, back in the early 60s, they called it strip mining. That was before the term mountaintop removal. And they blasted off the tops of the mountains, and she started writing songs about that. Black Waters is a song that she wrote when she noticed that it actually killed all the marine life and the little stream. They, they called it the branch. It was a branch of the Kentucky, the North Fork of the Kentucky River, a little branch that went by their house. Um, there, all the little tadpoles died off, and the waters were this sort of muddy, churned-up uh, color. And so that's what started that uh, movement in her life. John, let's have a listen. We were talking there about the environment and, and your mother's uh, campaigns. And her song, Black Waters, features on that album, Dear Jean, John McCutcheon, mm-hmm. Tim O'Brien, Kathy Matea, among others, performing that. Uh, quite a, a remarkable song uh, and still retains this power and, and spirit that seems to be very much a part of her. Uh, well, it's a remarkable group of people performing it, first of all. Uh, and... They really brought to it a lot of uh, love for mom and passion for the subject. Uh, Kathy Matea is is a real crusader against mountaintop removal as well. And uh, John McCutcheon has also been very vocal about that all his life as well, too. And they also love her a great deal, so I think that comes through in the song. Black bear 
that's lately Rushing waterfall, wildflowers dream, and through every green valley there runs a clear stream. Now there scenes of destruction on every hand, and there's only black waters run down through my land. Gene Ritchie's song, Black Waters, there, John McCutcheon, Tim O'Brien, Kathy Matea, and friends from the album Dear Gene, Art to Celebrate Gene Ritchie. So many versions of, of your mother's songs. Uh, I was struck by something that Dolly Parton writes on, on the sleeve notes for, for this album, where she says that your mother's songs are right up there with Hank Williams and the Carter family songs, and that she personally. Loves every song Jean Ritchie has written. She says, when I grow up, and she only wrote this last year, when I grow up, says Dolly Parton, I want to write just like Jean Ritchie. Marvellous line. Yes, I, we were very gratified to, to hear that. And of course, it was very gracious of her to say. They recorded uh, one of Mom's songs on their uh, trio album, uh, Linda Ron, with Linda Ronstadt and Emmanuel uh, uh, Harris and Dolly. And... They did such a beautiful job of it, of Dear Companion, and Mom always loved that. And now Johnny Cash, the funny thing about him was that he asked her to write a song for him, and she wrote a song called Sorrow in the Wind, and it had a very low part to it, and she thought it would sound good in his voice. And she sent it to him, and he, she never really heard much about it. And then years later, he ended up recording l so that was a, a nice thing. And uh, on that note, uh, let's listen to Johnny Cash singing the LNN Don't Stop Here Anymore. Okay. When I was a curly headed baby, my daddy set me down upon his knee. He said, Boy, you go to school and learn your letters. Don't you be a dirty miner like me. Johnny Cash there with the Gene Ritchie song, The L and N Don't Stop Here Anymore. John Pico, whatever whatever about the, the song your mother wrote for Johnny, uh, that one certainly also really, really suits his voice. A marvellous version of that song. You know, I was just thinking as I heard it, uh, this was a, on an album called Silver, uh, which celebrated 50 years of Johnny's career. And uh, they really pulled out all the stops in terms of the full brass section and everything. But you really... There's no hiding the integrity and, and of his voice and uh, just really wonderful. You know, we've been talking about other people's voices and their interpretations of, of, of your mother's songs. But of course, she's a wonderful singer herself. I mean, she's this beautiful, clear, pure voice. You know, what, mm. For you, what, what's the power of her, of her singing, of her own voice? Well, you know, it's it's something that in my younger years I took for granted. It was just mom singing, you know. Later, when I hear her, uh, especially as a, as a younger singer, and then even as she, as she gets older, the, the voice takes on slightly different character. But there is a beauty and a clarity that you just don't hear very often. A lot of people who sing mountain music try to sound more traditional than they actually are. And maybe they, they add a lot of ornamentation and a lot of, uh, you know, that, that really isn't always necessarily appropriate to the music. 
she sang songs that she learned them fairly straight. I guess that was the tradition where she was from. Um, and, you know, she adds a little ornamentation and does some very subtle things here and there. But I always thought that, that her performances were so tasteful in that regard that she didn't over, overdo it, you know. Let's have a listen, John, to your mother singing. One of us was one of the songs that is, uh, again, celebrated on this album, but her own version of The Cuckoo. Okay. glad tidings and she tells us no lies The inimitable voice of Jean Ritchie there is singing the cuckoo Mary McPartland that pure lovely voice and it, it, it is really striking isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful and as John is saying you know the purity of the mountain singer and the simplicity as well But I think her personality, uh, she's a powerful woman. She was powerful in every way and she was a collector and a hunter and a writer and a recording artist and all of these things and politicised and, um, you know, one of the great pioneers of the the folk revival of the, the 50s and 60s. And so it's all there. What was it like sitting around the table, her, her kitchen table in Berea and, and, and singing in the company of people who really treasure her in that community? First of all, it was th- that very thing, how they do treasure her. And it was so such a natural place to be. Profound for me, I was sitting in the middle of some little part of history. And um, I knew, of course, that it was just the beginning of a new journey for me in terms of my own work in research and um, song collecting and recording. And that's obviously the next step. You're planning, I think, to make a, a tribute album to Jean Ritchie, that's but a, my quite brain. different. Yeah. I think to to this uh, to this album, dear Jean, in a way, almost reinterpreting some of the songs. Indeed, uh, part of my work was in New York, meeting with uh, the great Bertha Hope, the great jazz blues pianist, and uh, we've been working together now, and we've had a couple of concerts. It's a very natural uh, process for me to uh, go ahead with Bertha, and we've looked at uh, ten beautiful songs of Jean's, and we're going to um, work with them, work with. Uh, great musicians in New York and we're going back to Berea and the wonderful Sam Gleaves and indeed John uh, who's with us here I hope he will be a special guest and Professor Mick Maloney uh, in uh, New York and lots of other musicians from the west of Ireland and again we're going to call it From Mountain to Mountain and everything that happens in between. So the, the, the mountains of Ireland and the west of Ireland, Leitrim, I, Tyrone to, to, to Kentucky. Uh, John, what does it mean to you to, you to know that your mother is, is remembered in this way in Ireland and, and celebrated, I suppose? And again, that link to her own journey here and, and your father's in 1952. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to our family in general, I'd say. Uh, Mom and Dad were delighted when Fabio uh, Cronin approached them about acquiring their collection, because they were kind of worried about what to do with, with all of these wonderful things they'd collected. They'd used them in several recordings and, and over the years, but really had no permanent home for them. And it was just a wonderful thing that he came forward and, and expressed an interest. And also because Elizabeth Cronin, being his grandmother, uh, was one of their sources. When Berea College, uh, um, they had a 
a group that went over there, Mary may know more about this than I do, but a group went over to uh, with Silas House, who was a, a, a professor there and also a, a very well-renowned author and playwright. He took a group over on a tour of Ireland, and they went to the Hardeman Library and were looking at these pictures. And I was sent a picture, a group of these kids from the mountains, sitting around looking at mom and dad's pictures in Ireland. It was very, very moving to me. And then, apparently... Uh, I didn't have see documentation of this, but they actually stood over in the corner of the library and very quietly sang Mom's song, Now is the Cool of the Day. So Mom was very gratified by that. Oh, John, I was there. I organized it all. <laughs> I knew you had a hand in it. <laughs> I was there in the middle of all that wonderful uh, experience. Oh. Yes, it was It was really good. This wonderful archive has is, is uh, alive and well and being embedded into uh, academic modules at NUI Galway currently in terms of the history of traditional music and song Great. is very, very important. So um, an awful lot of work and a lot of essays and a lot of uh, other experiences will happen over the next um, while um, because of that. Mary, I think you've also inaugurated this, uh, what will be an annual Jean Ritchie Memorial Lecture as well at NUI Galway. Yes, that has just started at uh, the university. Mm-hmm. So uh, we will be inviting great people and I believe you have, uh, you yourself will come over and give that lecture in... In 2016. Uh, John Pickard, we're going to finish in a moment with the, the last track on the album, Dear Jean. Uh, the piece round, Jean Ritchie and Friends, Words and Music by your mother. That particular piece, the piece round... Well, the piece round was written uh, to a tune, an existing tune, obviously, a round tune. It was Rose, Rose, or uh, Hey Ho, Nobody Home. It, it has a lot of sets of words to it. And those words just sort of came to Mom one day, and she noticed it sort of fit to that tune. And it's become one of the songs that people of hers that people really love a lot. And uh, one year, right after she had a stroke, um, somebody decided, wouldn't it be great if on New Year's Eve... After we sing Paul Lang Syne, if we sing the Peace Round for Jean. And it sort of caught on, and we were sitting home in the living room, and we kept getting these things on, on uh, Facebook and online, saying, and we just sang it here in Australia, and it, <laughs> it worked itself around the world. So it made us feel very good that, that the song sort of was a mom's little prayer for peace, and made it around the world that night. Peace Round. So here's how it goes. John Pickle, thank you so much for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Mary McPartland and John Pickles, thank you both very much indeed. And we'd also like to thank the University of Berea in Kentucky for permission to include the archive of Jean Ritchie's voice in this programme. That edition of Arts Tonight was first broadcast last December and rebroadcast to remember the legendary American folk singer Jean Ritchie, who died earlier this month. 
On next week's programme, we take a look at Volume 4 of the landmark series Art and Architecture of Ireland. Contributors to the programme will include Hugh Campbell, Livia Harley, Ellen Rowley, Graham Hickey and Barry O'Reilly. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleanna Neonlun.